Welcome to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. Simulcast, translating academic conversations to practical application. So welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel and we're joined this month for the General Club, again as usual by Ben Simon. How are you, Ben? I am good, my friend. Uh, lovely to see you and lovely to have some very special company with us as well. I know. Tonight we also have Eve Purdy because we're going to be talking about culture and who better to than an anthropologist, emergency physician, simulationist. How are you, Eve? I'm doing very well. Thrilled to be back on Simulcast. That is good. All right. Well, Simulcast listeners, this is our May Journal Club and we've got four papers, documents to look through. Two of them relate to, I guess, one of my favourite topics, and that is uh, simulation as applied to systems. And two of them, which is related, of course, is uh, some of the cultural aspects or cultural compression as related to simulation. But we're going to kick off unusually, Ben, with a government document. I think this might be a first for us, is it? Uh, it certainly was. I think that was one of my challenges. So it was a, a new type of information to look at, which I enjoyed. Yes. All right. Well, I will give the title here. Now, this is a publication by Health Education England, which some people might know is the sort of educational arm of the NHS. I'm sure that's a imperfect description, uh, but it's a nationwide group in the UK that uh, oversees a lot of the work that is done uh, in educating their workforce. And the document, I'm going to read, it's quite a long title, uh, is Enhancing Education, Clinical Practice and Staff Wellbeing a national vision for the role of simulation and immersive learning technologies in health and care. And this was just published in November 2020. And I suppose it's a attempt to give, just as they say, a strategic vision, an overarching document to how to integrate things that are happening in SIM across the country and across other elements of government. And again, by way of background, this was actually sent to me by the organisers of the ASPE conference. Now, again, people in the UK might know who that is, but ASPE is the Association for Simulated Practice in Healthcare. And uh, they run a conference every year, and this year it's in November 2021, and they're going to base it on some of the themes that were in this document. And for those who are interested, if you want to go to aspih.org.uk, you'll find some details about their conference and indeed about the organisation there. Uh, but to give you a little bit of a background to this document, or perhaps an overview of this document, I think it makes me reflect a little bit on the work that we do that is what I would call bottom-up, uh, that is the sort of hard, everyday grinding it out at the coalface with simulation, uh, versus the work that comes top-down, and that is that uh, having a strategy that means we aren't all just making the same mistakes and we can learn from each other and educate those things. And before I sort of give a description of each of the chapters here, Ben, uh, I, th I feel like that's the tension that we're navigating when we read a document like this. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I 100% agree because I think it by – um, it necessarily uses a different style of language, uh, slightly more uh, corporate type speak to it, but also it, it sets out a very clear uh, vision in a very different language than what I'm used to at the coalface, as you sort of described. Um, but certainly at the same time, uh, really envied uh, to be in an organisation where there is that vision so clearly identified. Yeah, absolutely. And I think... 
what this really showed for me is that uh, simulation has come a long way from just being a vehicle for CPR training. When you look at the chapters in this document, they really do encompass at least what I see as the much more comprehensive role that SIM plays in a contemporary health service. And I'm not obviously going to go into them all, but just to give you a sense about these key themes, they relate to firstly, patient safety, workforce development, including education, enhancing the learning environment, uh, involving patients, developing the simulation community through faculty development, research and innovation, uh, and lessons from outside healthcare, the sort of intersections. And uh, there is a special section on reflections of the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, and I feel like there is on page seven of this document a, a figure that really, I think, captures this breadth of impact on workforce and on system and work design. So in this diagram, they talk about workforce simulation playing a role in recruitment and selection, development and assessment, lifelong learning and transformation and remediation and support but also having impacts on system and work design, including physical environments, equipment, devices, technologies, uh, procedures, guidelines and checklists, and also job design. And then obviously with outcomes that are across the board, including safety, but also efficiency, uh, patient and consumer experience. And uh, they even say quite explicitly that this document is aimed at system and organisational leaders. So this isn't just something that the SIM community um, is looking at. And I just want to take the example of one of these chapters, which is the patient safety one. I think gone are the days where we just think, let's just train everybody and they won't make mistakes and that equals patient safety. But in fact, this really goes a lot more granular. It talks about rehearsal for performance. It talks about professional capabilities and multi-professional team working. And it talks about strengthening the resilience of the system, stress testing new policies, guidelines, environments through insight-tree simulation. Uh, this is kind of the document that I feel like I would have liked to have had 10 or 15 years ago, Ben. What do you think? Yeah, 100%. And I'm fascinated you highlighted that diagram as well because I don't think I have seen as nice a diagram anywhere else that truly tries to encompass the breadth that sim can do while still uh, sort of synthesizing and bringing home that this is about targeted outcomes on patients and staff and the workforce uh, and really an elegant visual haiku i thought of what um can be done with sim that i really admired um and again like you say like i think this is an important visionary document uh, that's much broader than what we're often used to seeing. Yeah, absolutely. And just for the people who are online, we'll put a link to this document in the blog post. But if you are just happen to be on your computer right now, you can go to the Health Education England website, which is just hhe.nhs.uk, and you can search there for the technology enhanced learning or simulation area where they've got the document actually uh, listed. Yeah, I thought it was very good. And, and look, there were lots of highlights in the other chapters, which people might like to look at for themselves. But uh, just really just thinking about some unusual roles for simulation, at least from where we've been traditionally thinking about simulation and staff selection and what they call enhanced induction. Uh, topics we've talked about, Ben, public and patients, faculty development, research and evaluation. Uh, Eve, I know we've got you here as an anthropologist, but any uh, sort of comments on such a thing as a government document? Will it make a difference, do you think? Well, at the end of the day, it's an artifact. Uh, it's an artifact that tells us a lot about who we are as a group right now and what we value. 
Um, I think it's something that we'll look back on maybe a decade, maybe two decades from now, and will be a moment in time that will be important for us to uh, to reflect on. Um, and so I think it's a, a pretty interesting and, and really a pretty exciting um, summary of uh, the kind of simulation culture as it is. Mm, there you go. Ben, sorry, I think I interrupted you before. Was just going to highlight, I think, for me that uh, I also love that there was a shout out to uh, in involving patients in the public in specific, uh, specifically and that that was clearly valued by the organization and worth embedding within their practice. Um, I was surprised a little bit, uh, and I know we've got Eve here, but I was surprised that culture wasn't as highlighted within their strategy as I had expected, uh, even though it's probably alluded to in a number of those other themes. Um, but no, I agree, a really important and useful document. I did struggle with it as a uh, different type of document in terms of how to read it, the fact that it wasn't referenced, for example. So it was sort of like a big list of this is all the things that Sim can do that's good. And I didn't really know how to process that myself personally going through the document a little bit. And the second impact of that was that I had set aside three hours to prepare for this podcast, <laughs> sat down <laughs> and went, oh, God, it's 40 pages. Don't worry. The last 20 will be references. But they're not, Vic. They're not. <laughs> Sorry, Ben. <laughs> All right. Well, we shall let the simulcast readers uh, look at it for themselves. But apart from that, I think Take Home is Sim has got much to offer and Pleasingly, uh, health service leaders, I think, are recognising that. And on that vein, Ben, maybe you should take us into the uh, next paper that we're going to review along the same systems-focused lines. Yeah, so it's a nice uh, springboard into a bit more of a double-click on a particular issue within systems-focused sim. So uh, this paper was entitled Building Impactful Systems-Focused Simulations, Integrating Change and Project Management Frameworks into the Pre-Work Phase. Dubai et al. Uh, advances in Simulation in 2021. So what is this paper about? Look, we've talked a lot over the last few years about translational SIM and the use of SIM for identification of latent safety threats. And we've also been challenged by some data like from Hicks and Petrosoniak about just how hard it is to get teams to effectively identify latent safety threats and act on them. And in many ways, this concept of systems-focused debriefing is an emerging science. And so as such, I think it's useful for us to have literature that describes in detail a mental model for others to consider when starting this process in their own service. And because this is complex, intense stuff when done well, and it could easily be overwhelming for someone without the experience to break it down into achievable parts, I'm really happy to have this document in particular. So Dubai et al. provide us with a very deep and specific dive into one part of this goal, which is the pre-work phase of systems-focused simulation. And they reference embed and embed the PEARLS framework for systems integration, which I don't think we've covered in heaps of detail on Simulcast, uh, but then the paper very explicitly sets some conversational boundaries. This is not about the debrief. This paper is not about how the simulation runs. It's really about every detailed thought and process you need to consider before that happens, which it turns out can read as a pretty Herculean task. The authors blend a number of organizational change management concepts together, including in particular Cotter's eight steps for organizational change and the project management body of knowledge developed by the American National Standards Institute, as well as the PEARLS framework itself. 
And there's a calculated risk here as framework mashups can sometimes be a bit clunky or overwhelming, but I think they do a pretty good job here of harnessing the overlapping synergies between these concepts into a usable framework and particularly using some of their uh, visual charts to map out how these concepts uh, overlap in explicit but very practical detail. Over the course of the paper, they describe moving from initiation to planning to execution of systems-based SIM with a lot of really useful tips and tricks along the way. It's a big paper and it is very dense with information, so I'm not going to list all of the tips here, but some fundamental tenets that really stood out for me were things like making sure that the proposed change is one that will benefit from a simulation-based testing strategy. Defining early who those stake with stakeholders what systems-based simulation is and isn't to clarify potential misconceptions early because they might not know what you're going for, even though it's starting to translate into practice. The critical importance of early stakeholder engagement from a broader group than just medical and nursing and the use of establishing urgency through timetables and clear accountability and expectations. I like some of the stuff about delivery as well, particularly planning for appropriate debriefing spaces during testing and taking proactive strategies against the impact of frequent renter crowds that some of these events can cause on when you're participating in them. So overall, for me, I thought this was a fantastic paper, appropriately proposed as an innovation, given the lack of evidence of efficacy beyond the caliber of the author group. And I think it's a paper that works better as a reference to, to return to than a light read. There's a lot to digest. And I think really coming back to this paper again and again during whatever innovation you plan to test is going to be very helpful for a lot of people. What did you guys think? Yeah, for sure, Ben. I think you're right. This uh, illustrates just how much needs to happen around before and after, indeed, the simulation. Obviously, I saw lots of corollaries between this and the paper that I joined Chris Nixon and Steph Barwick and Andrew Petrosoniak, where we probably came, I think, with a very similar set of challenges, which is, sure, we know that there's some concepts here, but what's the roadmap to actually making it happen? And we used, I suppose they used some frameworks, They we used our input process output model but I think very similar it just recognizes that there's much more to it than simply the sim or even the conversation afterwards I think the challenge and, and we had exactly the same one which is how do you balance level of detail uh, and saying here's a recipe with the fact that people have very different contexts in which they do this work so trying to keep it at the principal level and yet make it practical enough I think is extremely hard and uh, my only real criticism and I would level this at our paper as well is I think this works really well if you have quite an evolved simulation program because I think some people who are thinking of oh I'll just do a little sim might be, in fact be turned off by something like this. Uh, as I said, I think we were probably guilty of the same thing, and I think that's tricky. At the same time, although it paradoxically might stop sim happening, uh, not so paradoxically, that may be a good thing if people are expending effort that ultimately hasn't been well prepared for. Well, like that point, look, there is that tension there, isn't there, between breaking down and sharing something that for many could be an unachievable aspiration and the intimidation that that might cause uh, while still trying to raise our standards and expectations of what we can consider and how much detail we really need to think about things to effectively deliver them. Any mm. thoughts from you, Eve? This paper just continues to add some weight and evidence to my gut feeling that so much of the benefit that comes from a simulation is uh, in the time and effort and energy that uh, occurs before it. 
uh, that getting the right people around the table to have those discussions and to do that thinking probably as much of an intervention as anything else. Mm. The the uh, one other thing I'd say is it must have been really quite challenging to write. There's 10 of them on this author group, a number of whom I know who are well credentialed to be writing this kind of stuff. But imagine just the, I remember just the four of us getting together and trying to agree on our approach was quite something else. Whereas uh, for the 10 of really very talented people to have some sort of consistent approach must have been very challenging. All right. Well, maybe we should uh narrow down a little bit from the broad system to the specific uh, issues relating to culture. What do you think? We move on to our next paper. We've got the perfect group. We have indeed. All right. Well, this next uh, article we're going to review is a systematic review, and the title of this is Cultural Considerations in Debriefing, a Systematic Review of the Literature. And this is from Jalis Panaganis and a team, an international team. And uh, this was published in BMJ Stell in May 2021. And really, I think the background and the abstract probably captures the rationale for this uh, work. And I'm going to quote it here. Conversations are influenced by cultural perceptions, beliefs, and values debriefing is a learning conversation. Without cross-cultural engagement or culturally relevant teaching, learning may be compromised and may result in an outcome opposite of that intended. I actually think that captures the whole sort of essence of what they're trying to do here, I think, and understanding that uh, culture is tricky and that people are not all the same the world over. Surprise, surprise. Uh, And that, in fact, could be, given the kind of nuance that we expect to happen in debriefing conversations, uh, be either a barrier or an enabler to us achieving the aims that we hope to achieve. So uh, this systematic review and in the detail is in the paper there, but essentially they go through a pretty standard process using the method described by the Joanna Briggs Institute and reported using the PRISMA guidelines. And I guess this is where it gets a little bit tricky. They go through 180 articles, they get 28 full texts, and then after they look at them all, they only come up with three that they think actually meets their criteria of looking at how cultural considerations uh, might occur in debriefings. And I'm going to sort of hand over here a little bit to Eve because I feel like uh, those three articles are reviewed in a way that perhaps draws on some of the literature related to how we think about culture uh, and then tries to translate it into some experience that is reported, at least in those three articles, uh, in debriefing. But I guess I'll say right up front, I don't feel I'm left with a whole lot of guidance yet about how I should do it, um, which is, of course, also influenced by my own positioning here. But uh, Eve, why don't you extend on that, please? Yeah, so, you know, I have the same feeling at the end of this article. This systematic review is done very well, uh, according to the way that we in medicine think systematic review should be done. Um, but the outcome with only three articles, I think, uh, really doesn't leave us with much uh, either to chew on or to think about or to move forward with. Um, I think at this point, I probably would take a little bit of uh, advice from one of my thesis supervisors um, who said that when I, I get accused by my uh, anthropology thesis supervisor of when I'm writing for medical audiences of kind of maybe embracing my hypocrisy a little bit too much um, in really taking on uh, a positivist worldview in my writing. And so this reads like a systematic review, uh, which 
they actually in their kind of discussion don't really uh, don't really think is appropriate uh, to have a positivist take on this issue. So the three articles that they reviewed all actually drew on the same theory, which was uh, a pretty uh, very well recognized but uh, less appreciated in anthropology and sociology worlds uh, theory from Hofstede, who did a, a big study in the 1970s. Um, where he basically was able to rate 40 countries on a spectrum of uh, different uh, cultural values. The issue with Hofstede's approach is that it actually was all based on a job satisfaction survey that was done by IBM. Uh, It was done in 40 countries. Only six of those countries had more than 1,000 responses. Um, Many had less than 200 responses. Uh, They were all done mostly by kind of white collar workers, not blue collar workers, and mostly men, as I'm sure you can appreciate during that time. Um, So we get a fairly limited look and a very static look at culture, um, as opposed to it being a much more dynamic concept, which I think is how anthropologists and sociologists have come to appreciate culture to be. Now, why is that important? Um, It's really important because if we... I guess, grade culture or put a number on it or try to simplify it in dualistic terms, we really start to get the illusion of understanding. Um, And with that illusion comes, I think, some potential harms um, in terms of stereotyping uh, and in terms of thinking that we know exactly what's happening in a group of 20 people in a debrief that may bring all sorts of things into that room that are important. Um, and so I, I really think the distilling of, of culture into a scale or, you know, five points is prob- is a bit problematic. And I wish, I really just wish in this article they had uh, gone there in their discussion and started to push us as a simulation community about how we might think or about a concept that is really important and that we can, uh, I think, do a better job of. Mm, So let me test this out a little bit because, for instance, one of the things that is talked about is power distance uh, and in particular gender dominance uh, in different cultural contexts. And what you're saying is that's overly simplistic, uh, particularly as applied to debriefing. And although that may or may not be true, it's not enough. Exactly. I, I think we all know that those dynamics are at play but exactly how they're at play in any given group that you're in will differ. So what is the makeup of nurses and physicians in your group? And how does that affect the power dynamic? Um, Who are the supervisors? Um, I think there's a whole bunch of other cultural features. I know they were specifically looking at national culture, um, but there's a whole variety of other cultural features that really may arguably be more important in a debrief than national ones. Mm, Yeah, exactly. And I think they did actually say that uh, those three papers they found, that was the predominant thing and that was why they ended up talking about it. But as you say, there's there's much more to that. Ben, uh, from the non-anthropologist point of view, but uh, I know you are interested in this sort of uh, topic as well. I am, and so I love hearing someone so much smarter than me talking about it at such a deep level. But I think, um, and so thank you, I feel like I learned so much just from that paragraph of Purdy but I think for me the things that again stood out as sort of a um, more basic reader was that again I was a little surprised to see the power distance thing come up which is probably the most 
common theme that I've read when we have talked about cultural elements in debriefing before. And what I did like about this paper was that it did start to make the argument that rating everything according to a North American slash Western scale and model of debriefing um, is not necessarily the way forward in understanding other cultures' approach to it. And I really appreciated that they voiced that. I think for me, the I can't remember if I've shared this analogy before, but I remember coming back from San Antonio IMSH and having a really lovely dinner with a bunch of Chinese delegates who'd come along. And we were talking about... Um, debriefing styles and and they just had this most wonderfully frank slightly brutal conversation about their thoughts about advocacy and inquiry in particular as horrendously inefficient and and that to them uh they had no problems in their culture just telling people what they'd done wrong and they couldn't quite work out why these Westerners were feeling like we needed to spend so much time coding and approaching how to explain to somebody what was being done wrong. And it was just such a delightfully different type of thinking to what I was used to that I really enjoyed the challenge of it. And so I think when we start thinking about what, where are our cultures really different, uh, I agree that we need to start asking uh, more complex, nuanced questions than trying to simply measure them because I think that's so far what we've tried to do, which is an admirable start. I think the other thing that you bring up there, Ben, that's really interesting is this concept of what your positioning is within a group. So are you an insider? Are you an outsider? And perhaps having an insider guide uh, along for the ride uh, is variably important. So it may be very important at your own hospital when you're going to a department that perhaps has a strained relationship with the one that you come from. It may be even more important when you're stepping into a group in a culture that has a different national culture than, than you do. Um, but I sense that it's, there's this spectrum of how inside and outside you can be to be effective as a, as a debriefer. And, and also how you measure that efficacy. Like to me, I approach something with the value that I want to make sure that people are free to speak and that that, sort of volume of speech is relatively evenly distributed. That might not necessarily be a measure of efficacy from another culture's point of view. It's really challenging. Mm. You can feel a bit rudderless, I guess. Hmm. Well, on that point, uh, I am going to ask Eve a couple of questions, but I did also just want to give a shout out because one of the, well, a number of the references here are to a friend of mine uh, work, Cynthia Ferronda uh, from Florida, who is one of my buddies from Harvard Macy. And she's actually written a lot in uh, clinical simulation in nursing and a number of other journals about debriefing for cultural humility. And I think explored some of this in a more narrative review kind of approach. So there's a couple of papers in there that are worth digging into. But my question is really, where do we go from here? Because I think we've pointed out doing this, that the systematic review may not necessarily give us much guidance about what we should do. So what do you think, Eve? Do we need more empiric research? Do we need, are we ready for more application and integration type scholarship? But where do we need to go if we're going to do a better job than we assume we're doing now? Part of the difficulty and challenge around this type of work is that it is so contextual. And I think that's where we really struggle with um, anthropology from a, uh, from a generalizability perspective, uh, is that every group that you go into 
uh, will have its own context that uh, is relevant. And so I'm not sure that our goal should be to find hard and fast rules. Uh, it should be um, to design questions and reflexive processes for debriefers that allow them to engage across contexts. Um, so that might look like um, a set or series of questions that a debriefer asks themselves before they go step into a room, or perhaps they ask somebody uh, at the institution that they're going to work uh, that they're going to work at if they've never been there before. Um, I think that probably some curiosity uh, will be what's most important. That is a bit of a challenge then from a research perspective. So I know that we really like to have things that we can teach that are specific and exact that are based in uh, empiric research. So I think uh, what where we're headed is um, working with both participants and debriefers to hear their stories about their experiences um, in different contexts um, and what works and what doesn't. Uh, I don't think that we're going to ever kind of completely get to uh, get to the bottom of this. One kind of easy or perhaps uh, important way would be a couple of uh, the papers that were reviewed in this uh, were interviews exclusively with English speaking authors. And we just can't base this type of research on uh, on English-speaking debriefers if we're trying to understand a different cultural contexts. So simple things like that would probably go a long ways too. Mm. Yes, somewhat ironic, but uh, yeah, very true. Uh, all right. Well, we might uh, go on to our last paper. But before I do that, Ben, I, can I just point out, you've just set some cracking examples of great phrases tonight. Framework mashups. Paragraph of Purdy, and my absolute favourite so far tonight, visual haiku. Yeah, thanks. Look, I'm <laughs> I know why people listen to this journal club, and it's for gems like all of those. <laughs> <laughs> my favourite at the moment is resuscitation feng shui. It's like getting your room right. That yeah, that's <laughs> it's a really handy phrase. All right. Yeah. Anyway, well, I'm just saying, keep them coming, Ben. I'll just keep playing the. Straight back. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll start with the title of the paper. Uh, so this last one we're going to look at, uh, the name of the paper is Deadly Bias, a call for gender diversity in cardiac life support simulation training. And this is by Larissa Spagnol-Silverman and Rachel Farby, both from New York. And this is an editorial in BMJ Stell from June 2021. And to be honest, this, I think, has cultural compression as its starting point. And again, I'm going to quote from uh, essentially the second paragraph where the author says, uh, as an emergency medicine resident, I am the clay being shaped by the medical system. So I do feel like this was our starting point. Uh, and I think I would put in brackets behind that, uh, the medical system, including the simulation programs within that system. And I think that's obviously something we've spoken about here. Uh, but this is a short editorial, and the starting point is talking about patients who present to the emergency department with myocardial infarction, and in particular pointing out that women uh, do not do as well in either their treatment or their survival. And in particular, it seems that there is a contribution of whether the patient's doctor is male or female that might have an impact on that. And so the author describes her experience of being both an emergency medicine trainee as well as 
more recently becoming certified in advanced cardiac life support. So as many would know, this is a course certified or um, provided by the American Heart Association. It's honestly a billion-dollar business. So many people do that training every year. That's a requirement for training programs. It's a multi-day training. Uh, but when our when the author um, completed this course, out of a total of nine virtual patient simulations, not a single one featured a woman. And this was somewhat shocking to her, and she then thought, well, no wonder we're not doing as well in our management of female patients. She then went on to point out, uh, thinking about CPR training, that almost exclusively uh, mannequins that we use for this purpose have no breasts. And so once again, we can see that there's messages that are sent from the way that we do our simulation training. Uh, now, obviously, she does also acknowledge that there's some intersectional nature of this uh, and without actually talking about whether those patients that she took were from diverse in other ways, um, but this one they've really focused in on gender issues. All right, well, Eve, you're the cultural compression. You made us think about it first, I think. So what did you have to think? I think that this authorship team uh, really summarized an issue that I certainly recognized and felt as I was going through my training as well. I think they really captured um, a concept uh, in a way that is important um, and that I'm not sure I recognized was as dramatic as it was. Um, so this is a perfect example. And I think an example that's uh, really highlights what cultural compression is. Um, this example is obvious. There are an infinite number of uh, other little examples in our day-to-day -day, um, that are the same phenomenon. Um, but yeah, hats off to the, uh, to the team for telling this story as clearly as they did. Mm. Um, ben, thoughts? And uh, can I push you to also tell us what you think we should do about it? Uh, yeah, my initial thought was that, um, I, I mean, I know we've talked a lot about this issue and the impacts it can have and how much we value that here at Simulcast and thinking about it. Um, but it also made me think about that uh, simulation versus simulacrum episode that you did in that, the cultural uh, impacts of sometimes very functional decisions cannot necessarily be um, rec uh, recognized early. So to me, sometimes the, the decision of convenience, I'm going to get people to be able to put their hand exactly on the lower third of the sternum uh, without impedance may have also set us up for quite a significant impact. Um, clinically in the way we see who our patients are and what we need to train for and how we value them. Uh, so I think it's a complex and fascinating issue and it I really liked as well from the structure of the paper that this was, again, role modelling the importance of both the learner and the educator and their journey together in becoming better at recognising and preventing this. So I think from a systems design point of view, obviously some mannequins need to change, but I think... Certainly from a practical point of view, if you're talking about e-learning in particular, there's a, there's a lot that we can do easily to make sure that we represent things in a more diverse manner so that there is not an impact on our patients as opposed to just virtue signaling. 
Mm, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Eve, this sounds like Ben's agreeing with your idea about having a little reflexive either set of questions or just approach after we've done some simulation design or delivery. What do you think? I have been saying for a while that I think that's probably the starting point. Uh, even with an anthropologist and an experienced simulation facilitator down at the Gold Coast, we have been struggling to sort out what is a good and reasonable and right way to uh, incorporate some more equity, diversity, and inclusion into our uh, into our simulations on a regular basis. Um, so I, you know, I suspect that this is a common. Um, desire for people, um, but with some hesitancy about what is the right way to do it. I mean, there's a pretty simple solution to this problem, like we just need some female mannequins. Um, but there's a lot more complexity that I think the starting point is is reflexivity. Um, and then with that layered on top of that, then some nuanced design and um, consultation with groups that uh, are equity seeking um, and working with them to sort out uh, how we can be uh, fulfilling uh, their needs for care and education. Um, and I think probably including those groups in design and delivery will be the the next layer on top of reflexivity. All right. Well, this feels like quite a lot to think about for a month. Some work on thinking about simulation for systems, some uh, ongoing thoughts about the role of culture, both in our debriefing, but also in uh, as a cultural compression in simulation design and delivery. Just a reminder for Simulcast listeners, obviously we'll have those papers linked at the website, uh, www.simulationpodcast.com. Uh, and we will look forward to another month contemplating simulation articles next month. Well, Ben, it's been lovely spending time with you. Absolutely, as always with you and also with Vic. I mean, you're Vic. I'm Vic, yeah. But thanks, <sighs> Eve. Thanks, thanks, Eve. <laughs> She's all right too, yeah. <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> all right, well, this is Victoria Brazel signing off for Simulcast. Simulcast, connecting the simulation community.